Ah, wonderful. Well, good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be with you this morning. Great to worship God together and um, to praise Him. You know, it's uh, funny that I'm sure Michaela chose those songs on purpose, but the the theme of today's um, preach is the sacrifice. We've been looking uh, so far, we've had a couple of weeks at looking at um, Jesus in the Old Testament. And uh, today we're looking at the pattern of how Jesus is being revealed through the Old Testament in terms of him being the great sacrifice. So we're going to do that today, which is um, a nice meaty topic to get ourselves into. So all through the Old Testament, most of us know that the sacrifices that took place, uh, there were many of them, and they were, if you like, a foreshadow that leads us to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that we've been singing about this morning. The Old Testament was founded on the sacrificial system. And one of the questions I want to look at this morning is why did it play such a big part in the people of God? You know, God introduced this system so that man could be brought into right relationship with God. You know, the sacrifices of animals over hundreds of years on Jewish altars, they were types, they were shadows of the great sacrifice that was to come in Jesus dying on the cross. So where did it all start? Well, we need to go back again to the Garden of Eden to see where. Simon helpfully explained a couple of weeks ago about sin first entering the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, where they ate the famous apple. Adam and Eve felt shame and guilt for the first time in that place. And what they did is they tried to cover themselves, they tried to cover their guilt and their shame from God, but they chose a poor cover-up. What did they use? Fig leaves, that's right. I mean, come on, fig leaves, it's not going to work. And the Bible says they sewed them together. I mean, how on earth they got a needle and thread to sew these things together. But they did it. They covered themselves up. Man-made solutions for sin and guilt, they never work. They never work. We try all the time. And I know I still try, but it doesn't work. The fig leaves of religious works will never cover the guilty sinner and make them right with God. God, however, following this, he chose skins of animal to cover Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.21 says this, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It wasn't just to keep them warm. Now imagine it. That here they are in the Garden of Eden, a life, an animal's life, had to be taken. A life had to be given before Adam and Eve could have been clothed with garments of skin. You know, already in this first act, this first moment, in the first part of the creation story here, there was a substitutionary death in order for both Adam and Eve's shame and guilt to be covered. You know, and this was like, if you like, the precedence that God set 
as his way of covering sin and shame throughout then the Old Testament. God's way, if you like, of being able to draw close to his people. Without the shedding of blood, our sin and shame is not covered. Leviticus 17, 11 says this, For the life of a creature is in its blood, and I have, been, I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It's the blood that makes atonement. You know, atonement means at one with. So with a sacrifice, it's about being made at one with God. The blood enabled the people of God to be at one with him. And it was God in, the, um, in this place in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve that provided this sacrifice, that provided this cover for Adam and Eve. It was God initiated. God ordained it. God's purpose, right here at the beginning, to cover Adam and Eve's shame and guilt of sin with a sacrifice. And this, as we know, is a foreshadow of the ultimate substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus' death on a cross that covers sin and shame once for all time and for all people. The pattern of sacrifice continues throughout the Old Testament. And in Genesis 22, verses 2 to 8, we read of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I'm going to spend a bit of time looking at this story uh, with you this morning in terms of Jesus being our sacrifice. So let's read this together. Then God said, take your son, talking to Abraham, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moria. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, this really is quite a horrific story. A bit like the one we had last week where we have Noah and the flood. It's it's a lovely children's story, but this one is a pretty horrific story. It's a pretty horrific account of a father being asked to take his son up this mountain to be sacrificed. You know, it doesn't make sense. Now, we all know the end of the story. It doesn't happen But it feels like, you know, why would God do this? But God is not a bloodthirsty or unjust in his demands in asking Abraham to do this. What he was doing is he was bringing our attention 
to the awfulness and the loathfulness and the incredible darkness and blackness of sin. He was also bringing our attention to the fact that here we have the father of God's people, the father of the nations. He's, he, the very first thing that God said to Abraham was that he would be a father of nations. And yet, here he is asking Abraham to take his son to give him up. You know, the man who's chosen to lead and father God's people, he's asking him, that very person, to demonstrate what he, the Father God, would do with his own son, Jesus Christ, generations later. It was a great sense of illustration of what he himself was going to do. That Abraham would take his son Isaac up a mountain as an offering, mirrors our heavenly father leading Jesus up the mountain of crucifixion. You know, just, just pondering that a moment, we're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. You know, God knew what was going to happen years later when Jesus died on the cross. And here he is calling his, the man he's called to be, the father of the nations, the father of the people of God, to do a similar thing. And thankfully, God provided another ram, a sheep, for, Isaac, for Abraham to sacrifice in the place of Isaac. You know, there are lots of parallels with Abraham and Isaac and our Father God and Jesus himself. You know, I read an article as I was preparing, and, I, and in this article, the, um, the gentleman had found 30 parallels, would you believe it, um, with this account of Abraham and Isaac with uh, Jesus and our Father in heaven. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to look at all 30. Um, I'm going to pick out six things that I thought the Lord wants to share with us this morning and we can look at in terms of the parallels of this story with Jesus himself. Number one, both Isaac and Jesus, as sons of their father, um, came to earth at the exact and precise appointed time by God exact precise time that God ordained it that they would come to earth. Now we know the story of Abraham and how long it took for him to have a son. You know, so much so that Abraham even tried to take matters into his own hands. Um, we know the story that he messed up and uh, he tried to get a son and, and he tried all ways. He, you know, even goes to his wife's a servant and he messed up. You know, and, and I think even reading the story of Abraham, you know, he messed up big time. And yet God still uses him. And he's still the father of the nations, of, of the people of God. You know, I think sometimes, you know, we disqualify ourselves when we mess up, don't we? It's easy to do. I'm like, oh, I can't. Well, why would God use me? But he does. He, you know, he wants to use you to advance his kingdom, to see his purposes Outworked. No one is disqualified. You know, God told um, Abraham very early on that he'd have a son. In fact, the day he was um, called, he was 75 years old. And do you know how long it took then for him to have Isaac? 25 years. Can you imagine waiting 25 years? When you receive a promise... It took him 25 years. I don't know about you. I want things straight away. You know, I'd, okay, 
okay, I've got to promise maybe 12 months. I'll give God 12 months. 25 years? You know, if, if he was, you know, 75, I mean, 100 years old? Really? I mean, in those days, it was a bit different. People lived a bit longer. But 25 years. I mean, if you read it in Genesis, it was nine chapters. It's a long time, nine chapters. A lot happened. You know, sometimes it can be hard waiting for God's appointed time. It really can. Sometimes some of us, I think even some of us in this room, are waiting on promises that God God has put in our hearts. Waiting for God to honor those promises. You know, I, I find waiting really difficult. I really do. I find it incredibly difficult. For many years, that gift of patience is something that's really eluded me. I, I, I mean, ask Abby. She'll tell you, you know, my wife. She'll tell you exactly, um, you know, I feel I've grown in understanding about waiting and patience. But, you know, God has really taught me about the gift of being patient, the gift of waiting. Thankfully and graciously, albeit sometimes quite painfully, teaching me how to live in patience. You know, patience, it's a fruit of the Spirit. I think as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can grow in this wonderful fruit. And I believe God wants to show us this morning something something new and refreshing about what it means to wait on him, wait for his promises to come to fruition. You see, I think being patient is something that cuts against the culture that we're living in in the Western world. You know, that everything has to be done straight away. We have deadlines to meet. I mean, we, we, you know, a lot of us work and we have deadlines to meet. We have to get deadlines done by certain dates. You know, we need to do it. We're driven by our environment. You know, people put demands on us. You know? Actually, the demand Steve puts on me, he's very patient with me. I'm very blessed to work for the church. But we can be driven by demands, by what people put upon us. And sometimes by ourselves. You know, our own insecurities, our own desires. You know, we think they're from God, but really they're not. You know, if, if creation was my idea, you know, I'd have made Adam and Eve, and, and when they'd messed up, you know, I'd have sent Jesus the day after. I said, right, here you go. Here's the solution. But God's people had to go through a process. They had to wait thousands of years before the Messiah came. You know, there are some really patient people in this church that I am really admire and really want to honor and um, you know somebody who is not actually in the room at the moment but she demonstrates such patience and such and I just want to honor Val Pryor because she is somebody who is so patient so gracious so loving and I know that she has got the fruit of patience in her heart I really do and I I look to her to teach me that wonderful fruit of patience and waiting. So it took 25 years for Abraham's promise to be realized in having Isaac. And why did it take so long? 
Because God is a gracious, loving, and patient God. And he's giving time to understand the promise that is spoken over Abraham. He gives us time to understand the promises he's spoken over us. You know, it takes time to understand our inheritance and how to walk in it. He gives us time to absorb the promises and take them in, to live in them, to believe in them. You know, believe in the promises that God has spoken over you. He has called you. There is an inheritance that is just for you as an individual. Just for you. No one else, just for you. And actually it takes time to step out in faith. Take small steps of faith to believe that God has called you for this time. He has called you, honestly. Honestly, believe it. You know, believe the promises And those promises are centered around him, around God, around his purposes, because it's him that we glorify. It's him that we want glorified through the promises that he's put in our hearts. We want his name lifted high because he is worthy of glory. He is the glorious one. He is the risen savior. And he's put promises in us that his name might be glorified. So where are we? Oh, yes. Psalm 37, verse 7 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. You know, there's a lot of waiting in the Christian life. And we can be in such a hurry, but God's timing is perfect. I know I've spent a long time on this, but I really feel like there is a a word for us as a church even. You know, that there is waiting in the journey of what God's called us to. God provides. God will provide for your situation. You know, um, the word waiting, wait, occurs 141 times in the Bible. And over 40 of these refer to waiting on God. Waiting on God. So if you're waiting on God this morning, keep waiting because he is in your waiting. And I'd encourage you to get other Christians to stand with you, to pray with you in your waiting, because God will meet your need. Wonderful. Well, that was the first one. (laughs) Five more to go. Right, the second one. Some of these are very short, but I just really wanted to bring to your mind just some of the parallels of this story, this account of Abraham and Isaac and uh, Jesus and our Heavenly Father. So number two, both Isaac and... And Jesus carried wood to the sacrifice. (laughs) In Genesis 22, verse 6, Abraham placed the wood on his son Isaac to carry the wood up the mountain for the burnt offering. As we know, on on that fateful day, Jesus carried the cross up the hill on which he was to be crucified. Number three, Abraham and Isaac. Do you know how long it took them to get up the mountain? took them three days. Jesus had three days from the cross to his resurrection on Easter morning. It took three days. You know, three is a very biblical number. It represents divine wholeness. Obviously, we have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It illustrates and symbolizes completeness and perfection. The number three was used as a divine stamp on fulfillment on the subject. You know, Jesus is the fulfillment 
of all that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Number four. Both sons, Isaac and Jesus, submitted willingly to their father's requests. Isaac willingly laid on the altar before the angel of the Lord called and told him not to do anything to him. And Jesus willingly went and gave himself on the cross. He willingly gave his life as a substitute for you and me, a sacrifice to cover the sins of every human being, from Adam to the very last human being created before Jesus returns. The sacrifice of Jesus covers the sin of all time. Number five. We read in the Genesis account that, um, and, uh, that the ram, there was, uh, as obviously Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, God provided a, a substitute sacrifice, and it was a ram. And this ram was caught in a, a thorn bush, and, uh, you know, and that's where the Lord had placed it. But we also read in the Gospels that Jesus had a crown of thorns placed on his head by the Roman soldiers. And finally, let's look at number six. Finally, God provided the sacrifice of a ram. The ram was a substitute for Isaac. As Abraham was obedient to God. You know, it's, it's wonderful, this redeeming story, because it's like Abraham messed up, but here he is. God gives him this opportunity to prove, to show God his faithfulness. And this time, he was obedient. This time, he takes his son. He takes his only son. He takes the one he loves, and he's obedient. And God provided a substitute. He provided a ram that, then I, that Abraham could then sacrifice. And similarly, God provided a substitute for sin. The sins of you and me in his own son as a sacrifice on the cross. You know, this account of Abraham and Isaac is a foreshadow of all that God would do later in sending his one and only son on the cross. The, um, the actual sacrifice of Jesus, the eternal sacrifice that satisfies forever the demands of God's justice over man's disobedience. You know, we have a substitute for us in Jesus. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's great. That's great news. It's the best news that Jesus is a substitute for us. You know, Hebrews 9.12 says that Jesus did not enter by means of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption for us. You know, the sacrifices of goats and calves in the Old Testament, they weren't enough. They weren't enough. The only sacrifice that was perfect enough was God's own son, Jesus. Now, it's rather poignant when we read in Genesis 22.7, when Isaac says to his father, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Then generations later, we hear in John 1.29, where John the Baptist was speaking of Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
You know, that question answered generations later in John the Baptist. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who has taken away the sins of the world. You know, we're going to be looking at this again in a bit more detail in a couple of weeks. But that is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You know, and, you know, in some ways, it's hard for us to consider the death of Christ. Because after all, it's death. It's horrid. It's dark. It was the most horrible day, Jesus' death. His sacrifice on the cross is horrid. Jesus is separated from his heavenly Father. It is horrid and horrific, but it's necessary. You know, I'll go back to what I said earlier. It just points us to the horrendous and horrificness of sin. But that God has ordained this perfect plan that takes it away. You know, we, we feel that horrificness because it is horrific But that Jesus has taken that horrificness away on the cross. That it doesn't have to have any hold on us anymore. That there is power in the death because there's power in the resurrection. Because there's new life in Jesus. There's new life. Death has been defeated. There's new life in Jesus. You know, some may ask, but but isn't there another way to know God? Surely there must be another way. To find God. Can't God just forgive my sin by divine decree? You know, write a law about it or or something of that ilk? You know, without this atonement or this stuff involving, involving the suffering of Jesus or the degrading shame that he had to go through? But then if this was the case, then we could all assume that God has, has overlooked sin or become indifferent to it. And sinful man would just go on sinning and think that, not think any more about it. You know, would go on putting ourselves as God, seeing ourselves as more than what we are. If the problems of the world and the brokenness of the world could have been solved in any other way, God would have used it. He would have done. But there is no other way. There was no other way to redeem the human race, to redeem you and me. If he would have done, he would have chosen it. In fact, if we go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said to his Father in heaven, please find another way. Please. He said to his Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. But then he prayed, not as I will, but as you will. Let your will be done, Father. Let your will be done. It was an act of love from God that he gave his son. As we choose to follow him, as we choose to believe him, as we invite him into our hearts, into our lives, into our And choose to follow him. He has made a way for us to know the eternal father. To know his love. To know eternity. To know forgiveness of sin. Because we are forgiven. When we're in Christ, we are completely forgiven. And we're exactly where we're meant to be. We have everything we need 
and more. And his glory is revealed in us and through us for all to see. His glory is revealed in us and through us. Hallelujah. When we know Jesus, when we follow him, his glory is revealed in us and through us. We have peace with God. That hole in our hearts has been filled with the love of God. Hallelujah. And I just want to finish this morning with the words of Charles Spurgeon. And I'm a massive fan of Charles Spurgeon. And he says things so much better than me, which I think is wonderful. He says this, Never did God have such honor and glory as he obtained through the sufferings of Jesus. Oh, they thought to scorn him, but they lifted his name on high. They thought that God was dishonored when he was most glorified. If you would receive the noblest conception that ever filled the human mind of the loving kindness and the greatness and the pity, and yet the justice and the severity and the wrath of God, you need not lift up your eyes, nor cast them down, nor look to paradise, nor gaze on hell. You have but to look into the heart of Christ, all crushed and broken and bruised, and you have seen it all. Oh, the joy that springs from the fact that God has triumphed after all. That death is not the victor. Evil is not master. There are not two rival kingdoms, one governed by the God of good and the other by the God of evil. No, evil is bound, chained and led captive. Its sinews are cut, its head is broken, its king is bound to the dread chariot of Jehovah Jesus. And as the white horses of triumph drag the conqueror up the everlasting hills in splendor of glory, the monster of the pit cringe at his chariot wheels. What great language Charles Spurgeon uses of the truth that Jesus is the King of Kings, that he died on the cross, but he rose victorious on Easter morning, that we celebrate that Jesus is now alive, that he is the victor, that no longer do we need to dwell on the death because now there's life in Christ that is available to us every single day as we walk with him. If you are here today and searching for answers or looking for a way out of your situation or for wisdom in a decision, you need to look no further because your answer is found in Jesus. He will provide, just as he provided for Abraham, just at the right time. He provided. Abraham, we know, is a man of faith. He's honored in Hebrews. Man of faith. He trusted God. He was obedient. He went up that mountain. Can you imagine those three days? Walking up that mountain, not knowing how God was going to provide. That's faith. That's faith. Even getting to the top of that mountain, building this altar, Putting his son on the top. That's faith. Trusting God's exact time. 
God provided. God provided. And God will provide for you and me. He will provide. He will provide. I'm confident that God will provide. And he did ultimately provide for each one of us by sending Jesus to die on the cross, to take away sin for all time, for all eternity. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And we receive the forgiveness of sin. You know, I still make mistakes. I still mess up. And the wonderful thing is, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Because I have been washed clean of my sin. Now, obviously, it does matter. Because we want to do the right thing. But you, you hear what I'm saying, don't you? It doesn't matter. God loves you. He is so for you. God provides every time. Sometimes not always in the way we expect. And there's two more things I just want to say before I finish. Firstly, Jesus has set us free from guilt. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you feel a genuine level of guilt at what you may have done, God can take that away. God can take that away as you trust in him. God has set us free from guilt because the penalty for that guilt has been paid on the cross. And the second thing I wanted to say is Jesus has set us free from shame. You know, no matter how bad you've been or no matter how bad you've been treated, you know, there's grace at the cross that we can be set free from shame. We don't need to feel bad anymore. As we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as we receive him into our lives, we can know freedom from shame. It's all gone. Jesus has taken it all on the cross. We're made new in Christ. We're sanctified in Christ. We are completely free in Christ and fully clean. He is our righteousness as we receive him into our lives. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Right. Um, I'm going to pray for us, I think. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that that ultimate sacrifice has paid the price of sin once and for all. That we can come and enter your presence. That we can know the eternal Father as our provider, as the God who goes with us, the God who goes before us. And I just pray for everybody here, Lord, including myself, Lord, that we would receive, Lord, more of what it means to know your forgiveness, to know freedom from guilt, shame, and, Lord, to walk in the freedom of who you called us to be, that, God, you provide. And I just pray, Lord, even now, just impart peace and confidence in you and around this room. Impart faith to trust that you will provide at just the right time in the right situation. Jesus, we love you and we worship you. Amen.